Patrick, tell us a little bit about what's going on with schools in England. Are, are, are you out of school for the year? Are y'all trying to do like a virtual learning or, or how, how is England handling schools with all this? Yeah, uh, so uh, out of school and they've got rid of the tests this year and they're trying to do um, online uh, work. But I'm not sure a lot of people would do it because there's no tests. So people don't really see the point. Yeah, it, it definitely... Uh, that that seems to be where the the big question I think that's in a lot of people's minds is like okay we're gonna try to make online learning work but will students actually do the work? Yeah, we'll see. Uh, well, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of What's the Res? My name is Josh Herring, and I'm here on the line with uh, Ethan Delves and with Patrick. Today we're going to be breaking from our normal pattern where normally we're discussing the current resolutions in the world of high school debate. Today, uh, the three of us have all read a uh, work of philosophy, uh, Soren Kierkegaard's book, Fear and Trembling. And today we're going to be talking about that book and what we, what, we thought, what we think is going on there. So before we really get into Fear and Trembling, um, we're going to introduce ourselves in case we pick up any new listeners with this episode. Excuse me. So uh, I'll, I'll kick that off. Uh, my name is Josh. I am the Dean of Students and a Humanities Instructor and a Debate Coach for Thales Academy, Rollsville. And yeah, uh, I'm one of the regular co-hosts on this show. Ethan, my name is away. My name is Ethan. I am a debater. Um, I'm one of Josh's students and I love philosophy. So I've read Fear and Trembling ready for this episode. Um, so normally we just do resolution analysis, topic analysis, um, expert interviews, stuff like that. But today we're going to be going over Fear and Trembling by Soren Kierkegaard and have an awesome philosophical discussion. Patrick, over to you. Who are you? And uh, help us know a little bit more about you. Yeah, I'm, I'm Patrick. I'm 16. I run a philosophy meme account. That's how these two got in contact with me. And I'm very into philosophy. And I also read the book by Kierkegaard. So just for starters, I'm going to point out that very few people read Kierkegaard. And so at the very least, the three of us have all read one volume of Kierkegaard, which I think is quite admirable. Um, We're in a very high percentile right now. Yeah, not, there's, there's honestly not that many podcasts about Kierkegaard. So uh, if, if uh, I'm definitely going to put Kierkegaard's name in the title of this one. Uh, oh yeah, there's one. There's one in England, actually. What's it... Patrick, you might know this. Isn't there a philosophy podcast with, by BBC or like BBC or something in England? There might be. I, I there is. I'll have to. I forgot the name of it, but I listened to it a lot. Well, I at least was looking for more resources on Kierkegaard uh, when I was starting to teach this, teach him, and I, I had trouble finding lots of stuff. So uh, he, he's lesser known. Uh, well, so uh, we've all read Fear and Trembling. Uh, let's just kind of go around the horn. Uh, what, what do you guys make of the book? Patrick, what do you make of it? Um, well, I think, firstly, it's quite a difficult book to actually extrapolate the meaning from it. Uh, and I think there's a lot of uh, stuff that he wanted to uh, present himself as believing, but also stuff he actually believed. I think there's a there's, there's hidden meaning behind it, and they didn't want everyone to necessarily know yeah, I'm with you. Like this, first of all, this book is literally almost impossible to understand. And and actually, in Josh's philosophy class, he told us that we needed to like the whole second half of the book. Every ten pages, we had to write a summary, just because it's that difficult. We're breaking it down into ten page chunks. What I made of it is that he doesn't he doesn't directly speak to what exactly he thinks. That's one thing. But the whole 
focus on like the night of faith and night of resignation is a very personal sort of focus. And I, it almost hits me as like, like if there was philosophical motivation for things, fear and trembling and either or would fit into that category, I think, because it's a whole like individual slash personal approach to philosophy. And his, his focus is solely on inner development. So it's almost like a self-help book is what it looks like. A very, very convoluted, abstract self-help book. I think that's probably a really good way to frame this because it's not uh, – Kierkegaard <laughs> is not interested in asking some of the questions other philosophers are asking. At least in this book, he doesn't spend a ton of time on doubt. He sort of wrestles with doubt a little bit, but then he really wants to focus on faith. He thinks doubt's pretty easy to get at. Um, he doesn't spend a lot of time on metaphysics or on the relationship between science and truth or anything like that that uh, are also huge, important questions. For him, it's all about how do you develop as a person and how do your choices uh, really motivate your actions and how does what you ultimately believe connect to your actions? This was, this was a due position too because after all of the systematic philosophers before him – like it's like a well-needed break almost and a break in the philosophical tradition. I, I think and I so. Think, um, it's also a self-help book for himself because uh, if you look at his life, he was depressed his, his most of his life. Um, so you could say that he's um, not talking about these metaphysical questions and just about faith is almost because to him it didn't matter. He just wants to have meaning. He wants to help himself and be happy in his life. It's almost like he's leaving it up to the other philosophers to create the system or not even the philosophers, but he's leaving it up to the individual to decide what system they fit in. But he's like, regardless of what system you choose or what system you fit in, this is what the, this is what the person looks like. And this is what the person not should do because he doesn't even push you that far, but this is what inner development of a person looks like. The system is on the outside. We're focused on the inside. Well, and as far as like his life goes, he has a very he has a very interesting life. But the um, it, it's really hard to d draw a direct line from the book to him, and he intentionally separates his work from him from his own his, from himself. That's I think that's really why he so often gives us a uh, a pseudonym. Uh, in Fear and Trembling, it's Johannes de Silencio. In Either Or, it's a uh, a guy named um, Victor Arimetia, as a Victor the Hermit. There's no such person as John the Silent or Victor the Hermit. They're, they're characters he creates, but he gives us these characters in a way so that uh, I've, I've been I'm working on a different article that I'm writing about Kierkegaard, and so I've been looking at some of the things that he does with his other books. And he intentionally separates this. He doesn't want anyone to think that he actually thinks this. So he creates this separate persona to say all of these things from. He has a few volumes where he doesn't do that, where he does sign his own name. And that's where scholars are much more likely to say, aha, here's what Kierkegaard thinks. And maybe they can do some of those biographical notes. But Fear and Trembling isn't one of those. But it, there, <laughs> there does seem to, there's a place that does seem very biographical to me. Because at one point, I mean, he talks about the guy who intentionally gives up his love for some greater thing, which, of course, is the key moment of Kierkegaard's life, right? When he gives up uh, he, he, uh, his uh, Regina Olsen, uh, his, his fiance, and he very abruptly breaks off his engagement to her so that he can write philosophy. Yep, I knew he was talking about himself. I was like, come on, Soren. We all know what's going on here. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I thought the same too, yeah. 
Uh, which, which maybe if we're, if we're already thinking this is a self-help book, we might also cast fear and trembling as like, this is a way of processing a bad breakup. I mean, like, yeah, he was like, <laughs> shout out me. Like this was difficult. I might as well write a paragraph about it. Paragraph. I don't blame him. I might, might as well develop a whole category of thought about the night yeah. of faith as like what he wants to be, but he can't quite be. Oh. Uh, okay. Well, unless there are any other general thoughts there, let, let's run through uh, a, a few things just to kind of uh, make sure we're all on the same page uh, vocab-wise. Um, Kierkegaard uses this term throughout the book, the absurd, over and over and over again. He constantly refers to the absurd. Uh, what do you all think Kierkegaard means by this phrase? Should I go first? Yeah. Please yeah, I go do. First. Um, my personal take on it is I think the absurd is a... Um, it's kind of a, a gap in reasoning. It's a suspension of reasoning and an introduction of faith in order to believe in something which isn't necessarily in reality. I think the what I got from the absurd is it's like a concept that you can grasp onto, and if you grasp onto it and if you're correct about it, then it justifies everything below that the the level that the concept is on so, but you would need to be correct in what you determine the absurd is and then that that connection would be a valid connection yeah i think you guys are on to some key parts of this that where uh, he uses that phrase the absurd in this really bizarre way um Patrick, you talked about the suspension of reasoning. I wouldn't go so far as to say a suspension of reasoning, but he thinks that there is something beyond reasoning. Uh, he thinks there's something that reason in the way that we typically use it, reason is based on sensory information that may or may not be correct, and reason can be flawed, in which case reason can't tell us about things that are ultimate, the ultimate reality, what he sometimes calls the absolute. And... Uh, <coughs> It's in that sense as if uh, the way I diagrammed this in class was a, it was a circle that contains everything that we experience in an ordinary, in ordinary reality that we reason within. What we might say is the world as we know it. And Kierkegaard is assuming, and I kind of drew brackets around the circle, and Kierkegaard is asserting that there is something beyond reality uh, in the sense that reality is what we perceive and that he is basing everything he's saying – uh, he, uh, on the assertion that we as human beings possessed of souls have the ability to reach not just into the world around us, but we have the ability to reach beyond the world and somehow touch what's beyond what we perceive to be reality. And he terms that the absurd. Now, I think he's, he's, he's being clever there because hopefully we're all in agreement that Kierkegaard is witty, right? Like he... Yeah. I mean, he, yeah. he, he's trying to kind of like crack literature jokes in the middle of his book. He, he, he's trying to tell random stories about mermaids. He's got this weird fixation on breasts that just goes throughout the book. Um, he, he thinks he's being witty. He picks this term. He, he's not suspending rationality, I don't think. He's not rejecting rationality. But he is pointing at the fact that our rationality is limited. And it's the distinction between the night of faith and the night of infinite resignation that the knight of faith is somehow able to, by faith, believe that there is more than what he sees. And that faith is what transcends the barrier between the world as yeah. we know it and the absurd. I, I like the last part of that, where 
I would agree that I don't think he's suspending all rationality. I'm just, it seems like he's arguing for the view that humans only have a certain purview of rationality and that we can't see how, or we have a per- certain purview of reality, even that we there's what we know and what we don't know is even bigger. So if we reach for the absurd, which is in the, what we don't know, then if we've reached, if we've reached correctly, then our rationality would be valid. And then we've made a, a correct decision based on what we don't know, but making a decision based on what we don't know is what requires faith. But, and, and it all turns on whether, I mean, and it all turns on whether or not the thing that you're the object of faith is real. I mean, this is where I, I, I love how Kierkegaard forces the reader to grapple with, here's this whole kind of line of thought that is all asserting God is real and beyond the ordinary world that you and I interact with every day. And if God is real, then all of the deductions that follow are logical but if Kierkegaard is wrong about that, if there is no such thing as the absurd, if there is no God, if there is no, if there's nothing beyond this world, then this is all ludicrous. Let's get into some specifics. I want to like dig into this more. Do you have anything in particular in mind there? No, I, I thought you had like a cue that you were going down. Do you? Oh, I do. I do. Yeah. Uh, my, like, yeah give us well, the next thing on the cue. Okay. Let's like, because right. I know we're going to extrapolate off of one thing. So it's you, probably going to take like a half hour conversation. So I'm just okay. I'm ready to spark right. that. Well, before we get there, um, Patrick, can you solve a conundrum for me? Do, do, do British people really talk about queuing up? Is that a real expression? Uh, I guess, yeah, we queue to... If we're in a shop or something. Oh, okay. Because we. What we does that mean? Line up. Q. Yeah. <laughs> oh. So. Oh, we, is that not a, a, a word you use in America? No. Oh, we we use the word Q, but it, we use it on like for Spotify when we're trying to set up a list of songs to oh. play. Oh, well, yeah, that's yeah. that's because Spotify is based out of Sweden, and they're basing their lingo on. Okay, well, England. Apple Music has it too. They're based out of California. Yeah. Well, anyway, I I saw that because you were talking about Q. I was like, well, we don't, that, that's a that's a British thing. But y'all y'all actually do eat beans on toast, right? That's a, I know that's a real thing. Yeah, some people do. I don't. Okay. I once stayed with a uh, a couple in, uh, in in Bristol, England, and um, the pastor's wife made me the best British breakfast I've ever had, and beans on toast was a staple of her breakfast plan. Well, where when have you been to all these places? I just I learned like a new place you've traveled to. It seems like every month you've oh, been to a new place. That one was uh, summer of two thousand ten. Okay. So all right. Well, let's do get into a uh, uh, that was a good good direction. Let's go specific. Uh, so. What is the big ethical conundrum that Kierkegaard is wrestling with in this book? What's the whole thing all about? Abraham being justified. All right, walk us through. Assume our audience has no idea what you just said and why it matters. Like, what is he, what's he getting at? What's the problem here? He opens the book with a couple of different scenarios of Abraham from the, the story of Abraham from the Bible, sacrificing his son, Isaac. And then in all the different scenarios, he kind of, pictures what it would look like if different things happened. He's like, well, what if Abraham tried to do this, but then Isaac lost his faith? Or if Abraham tried to do this, but it was such a horrible experience that Abraham lost his faith in the goodness of God. All right, and he lays out two more of them too, where Sarah was involved in one, but mm-hmm. he paints, I think it's four different pictures of the scene on Mount Sinai. Where, Mount um, Mount Sinai, Moriah, my bad. Moriah. Bad. Um, Mount Moriah. And after he does that, he sort of takes the, he takes the reader along a path 
of looking at Abraham closely and encouraging them not to skip over this story in the Bible because it's shocking. Because you would think that the way the Bible pictures God, that he's a good God and that he, he's perfectly good, which is a claim that the Bible does make. But he's asking Abraham to sacrifice his son that was promised to him. And, and for seemingly no reason, it seems like he's just testing him or it, it seems like the most horrible thing that God could ask Abraham to do. And he's asking the essential question, how can Abraham be fully justified and God be fully good in this scenario? Because it seems like those two things can't really line up. And that's really the entire premise of fear and trembling is what would cause Abraham to be justified in this situation. Yeah. And then that also links to the problem of evil, uh, which is what was written down here. Mm-hmm. Like how can a good God cause a, a world in which there is evil? And in order to justify this, Kierkegaard says that um, the ethical is suspended with faith because through the absurd, it goes beyond common reason and common reality. What do you think of that? What do you think of that idea that we can suspend the ethical? Well, it can be used to justify a lot of things, can't it? Not, Is not it valid? I'm not, I'm not sure, but I, I think it can be misinterpreted to justify things which um, people would consider evil. Because, you know, were the Nazis suspending the ethical? Well, I mean, that's, that's, that's certainly a leg- very legitimate argument, I mean, that it could be that way. But let's before we get to that, let's, let's stick with just Kierkegaard's argument and make sure we understand his argument on its own terms. And then we can see... Because I, I mean that that yeah, that's true of really any argument. I think any argument can be twisted in a way to to be suspended or to to be misinterpreted and abused. Um, we we just finished most recently reading Nietzsche, and uh, it seems like on every <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, it seems like on every page of Genealogy of Morals, there really ought to be a little Nazi flag inscribed um, because so many of Nietzsche's ideas. Uh, Nietzsche is not a Nazi, but the Nazis are taking and they're building and they're twisting Nietzsche's ideas, and it's the Nazi interpretation of Nietzsche's ideas that I think has really become the most famous. But before we can really evaluate that sort of thing, we got to know the original. So um, the other piece there that that may help with some of this, I mean, that uh, we haven't quite mentioned yet, uh, and this at least was in my mind the tie to the problem of evil. Uh, the philosophical problem of evil is that very whole question of like, okay, if God exists. How can God exist in a world where evil exists? Uh, because God is God is both all good and all powerful. And if evil exists, God is either not stopping the existence of evil, in which case he's permitting that evil to happen. And he's somehow uh, then he's either not powerful enough to stop it or he's willingly complicit in the existence of evil is how the argument usually goes. Now, <clears throat> but in this case, God asked Abraham to murder his son. And Kierkegaard forces us to look squarely at that. Um, And then his solution to that, which it takes him like 100 pages of super convoluted text to get to, his solution to that is that in a particular, in certain instances, he thinks it's very rare, in certain instances there can be what he calls teleological suspensions of the ethical. Can either of y'all help me with the meaning of that phrase, that word teleological? What's going on there? Teleological is... um for a particular purpose, teleology is mm-hmm. study of purpose. So a suspension of the ethical for a particular 
Yeah, and who decides what that particular purpose is in Kierkegaard's framework? Um, God. Yeah. Why? Because um, he is beyond the ethical. Okay. And but what is it about being beyond? What is what is it that? Let, let's let's jump out of Kierkegaard for a moment. I mean, who decides what a thing's purpose is? Its creator. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we 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 yeah. we treat pretty much everything that way, right? Either I've yeah. I've created it, or I've bought it, or I somehow ownership in some way, whether it's original ownership through creation or somehow through property rights. Ownership gives the right to decide what something is used for, what's good for. So for Kierkegaard, he's then asserting this. At least Patrick is where I push back and say I don't think I I don't know how you would abuse this because. I think ultimately Kierkegaard says there's a moment where God has a different purpose in mind. And for that purpose, the typical ethics are suspended. Now, what, what of course, what was the purpose of all of this? What was, what was the nature of the test? Uh, test if he had faith. Okay. And how did, how did Abraham do? He passed. Um, he passed, yeah. How? Because yeah. he, he was about to, well, he had faith that he would get, Isaac, or, well, I guess the way Kierkegaard put it to kind of stick with the text a little bit is that he infinitely resigned. So he, he resigned all control over the situation, but then he took the second step of the leap of faith, which was true belief and understanding that he would regain back his son and more. And that's what made him, the, that's what gave him like the ultimate status and the ability to suspend the ethical. Mm-hmm. So he's got then so the 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 Kierkegaard call, talks about in terms of a double movement, right? You've got the yeah. the infinite resignation and then faith that then transcends, and in that transcendence, the the individual who goes through this process uh, is is then above the ethical. Is that in uh, is that really confusing phrase? The absolute relation to the absolute. Oh yeah, that was messed up. Yeah. That was we, – we spent a long time in class trying to talk about the what, – what the meaning of absolute value was as part of that. That was – that got confusing quickly. Well, yeah, that was funny. Yeah. OK. So well, let's, let's circle back then though to, to that whole uh, – so uh, is, is that a satisfying solution to the ethical scenario? No. Why not? Why not? Um – because he never proves there is a God. And I think that's why uh, I talk about suspension of reasoning. I think that, I think Kierkegaard knows that it's not, um, that there isn't sufficient evidence to rely on that there is a God. And I think he has faith that there is in that he, he suspends reason to believe in him. So you're you're arguing that so if God did exist, would his argument be a valid argument, or is there a problem, an internal problem that would make it invalid anyways? Um, no, there isn't an internal problem. Yeah, if God exists, then his argument holds. I think that'd be pretty insane. Then we could just suspend the ethical. Like, I mean, coronavirus. Like, I can't get toilet paper. I go to my neighbor's house. I'm gonna suspend the ethical real quick, slaughter them, and get some toilet paper. Yeah, but do we? Uh... But did you have, like, God send you a message to do that? Well, that's true. There's my parameters, I guess. Well, so if, um, God, if God told me but, that... But you have um, terrorists who, in the name of religion... That's true, yeah. If they all, God told me to block this building. So it depends whose God is real, I yeah, guess. Is what, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So that's why I think it can be abused. 
if I if if my God told me to go to my neighbor's house and it's okay for me to take toilet paper, I would not only have to infinitely resign that I have no control, but believe that I would get multiple rolls of toilet paper in return for my resignation. Does that sound valid? Not, no, because that second piece, for this to fit, you would have, now for, for Kierkegaard's logic, now what you just said kind of works on a surface level, but I think it's ignoring the fact that um, Patrick's absolutely right. Kierkegaard is asserting God's existence, and the God Kierkegaard's asserting is the Jehovah of the Old and New Testaments. Uh, so he's asserting this God who is all good and is self-consistent, in which case... So to, for your toilet paper scenario to work, you would have to, so you've received like divine communication. You must go next door and steal toilet paper, right? Yeah, right. Okay. So you would have to then resign yourself to the necessity, go do it, but in the absolute confidence that God would somehow restore this stolen toilet paper to the people that you're stealing it from. Hmm. Okay. And for Kierkegaard, the point is there is that your it's your obedience and your faith that God will do the impossible because he is beyond the rational frame. That kind of fits into the rarity part of it, because how rare is it to get a direct message from God saying you can suspend the ethical? At least I mean, in the uh, in the entire Bible, there is. Oh, well. I can think of three possible scenarios that fit here. Abraham is one. Um, there are famously, there's midwives who lie to Pharaoh and Pharaoh has commanded them to kill Hebrew babies and they are commended for, for that. Um, and then there is a really confusing, obscure verse in the gospel of John about uh, Judas's purpose being to betray Jesus. Other than that, there are not any other, I can't think of any other suspensions of the normal rules of ethics. But Patrick's right. This entire argument is predicated on whether or not God exists and whether or not he's the God of the Bible. Is that right, Patrick? Yeah. Because he could be, even if he's any other God, then this still doesn't work. And I think God knows this. I think he he tries to um, convince himself that there, there is a God because he wants to escape <laughs> despair, but that, that goes outside this book. Ooh, are you drawing on any particular text to, to suggest that? Um, I don't know what text in particular. I haven't read other texts, but I've just, I've read about him and uh, he was, he's considered an existentialist by some mm -hmm. in that he, uh, he believes that like on a, uh, Within reality, there isn't a meaning. We we live in despair, so that's why it talks about this absurd. Beyond reality, we need this meaning. And like the whole call of existentialism is to is that the premise is that the world has no meaning, but the human being, the individual, can create meaning through their yeah. actions. Yeah, but I think he creates a meaning in the absurd, in what is beyond reality, and no. I think he uses faith to get that. Now, what's going to be what maybe what, what we also have to keep in mind here is that bringing that term existentialist is tricky because you're, you're right. There are a lot of people who look back at Kierkegaard and say he <coughs> he is the first existentialist, um, but he is he is incredibly different than the other main existentialists that people read. Uh, that that being Jean Paul Sartre in um, in the uh, in World War Two era France. 
Um, Sartre wrote a famous essay. Uh, Ethan will read it next track. Uh, but the essay is called An Ex- uh, Existentialism is a Humanism. And he opens that essay distinguishing two different kinds of existentialism. There is theistic existentialism, which he is not, and there is atheistic existentialism, which he is. And Sartre would agree with everything you just said, but I don't think Kierkegaard would. Kierkegaard is a theistic existentialist, and what he would... I'm basing this on parts of Either Or and parts of Fear and Trembling. Uh, and then I've read of one of his sermons and one of his, and sections of one of his other meditation books. But <clears throat> Kierkegaard would suggest something to the effect of you have an awful lot of potential that has not been realized, and you have the potential to change yourself, your essence, in a limited amount. So in a certain to a certain degree, you can make choices that determine who you become and where you go. But this is where Kierkegaard disagrees with Sartre. Kierkegaard does believe as a he's a sincere Danish Lutheran. Uh, he does believe that God created all things and humans are made in the divine image. And because of that, there are limitations on what you can make yourself into being. It doesn't seem like Kierkegaard's a terribly consistent existentialist, though, because isn't if you're an existentialist, then one of the main facets of that belief is that you can create your own meaning because the world doesn't come with it. So it, it doesn't seem like there could be something like theistic existentialism, well, because if you're creating your meaning, then you're not attached to the meaning that God has given you. And you're almost and it, it seems like Kierkegaard would be attempting to create his own God and put him there as a source of meaning. So he's either not an existentialist, would in that case he would be consistent, or there's another internal problem. That existentialist language does not get developed until the early 20th century. It's not anything Kierkegaard called himself. It's what er- other people looking back at Kierkegaard said, huh, he seems to have this really big emphasis on changeability, and that's an existentialist bit. So we're going to kind of, he seems like a, an early existentialist. He just seems like a theist that is focused on inner development of humanity. Uh, I think that I think that's fair. Um, yeah, and I think as far as like his one of his goals, he's he's a pretty complex guy. I mean, one of his goals <coughs> was to also poke at the state church in Denmark because he believed that most people called themselves Christians yet had no faith. So one of the other things I think he's up to in fear and trembling is he's wanting to showcase. Here's what faith really is. If God demanded that you kill your child, would you? If not, you don't have faith. And, and he said himself that he wouldn't as well. Correct. He, he, he puts himself over there as one of those knights of infinite resignation. He doesn't think he's up there hanging out in heaven with Abraham, which is fascinating. I don't really, I don't really know what to make of that. Well, does he only think that knights of faith get to heaven? Because he said he gave a lot of credit to the infinite resignation knights yeah. as well. Um, I think that's I, – I, yeah, I think that's – I probably misspoke there. Uh, he, it's okay. He, he definitely doesn't think he's like up there in faith with Abraham, but he doesn't make that the criterion for salvation or anything like that. So, Patrick, I remember on our, in our last discussion we talked a lot about the circularity of reason and how reasoning is circular so we can't entirely rely on this. Yeah. Is that – do you still hold to well I, I know you're not saying that reason like doesn't exist you're just you're skeptical of the fact that reason is consistent in and of itself correct yeah so we can't verify it, so even if Kierkegaard 
even if God existed and Kierkegaard was, if God existed, Kierkegaard could still be wrong because reason could be still be circular. Yeah. So um, I've been holding reason to be true for the purposes of this discussion of why right. discussion yeah. is meaningless. Right. So, but if do you think if God existed, that reason would be non-circular? Um, or because I can't see I can't see a world in which that I, a God would create and then create circular yeah, or make I, reason I think, circular for it. Um, well, if we go to Descartes for a second, he, he talks about how if God created um, man, he wouldn't create um, man uh, who would be deceived constantly. Yeah. We only have local doubts, not um, forget we call it the other one. We, we like, don't have uh, like more abstract or absolute ones. Yeah. Yeah. So, so like he, he gives the example of phantom limb syndrome. We'll only have that, but we won't see reality when there isn't one. So wait, but what would it what would it take to convince you that reason isn't circular? Like how much? Because you say that there's not evidence to prove it, but if there was evidence, then that evidence could still be circular, which I guess is part of your point. Yeah. So, what would make you place that bet that it's not circular? Um, no idea. <laughs> I'm with. I can see that. Um, Patrick, I'm really curious with that with that as an epistemological foundation. Why do you enjoy philosophy? Um, that's a good question. Uh, I, I think in order uh, for me to read philosophy and discuss it, I, I guess I have faith that reason holds, even though I don't recognize that that's entirely verifiable. So you are wholesale committed to not accepting anything that is unverified. No, I'm I'm not because I I accept reason in that you know I I do reasonable things. I won't jump off a roof. Why not? Um it's a good question, yeah. Uh because I don't necessarily act um I don't necessarily believe in things that are uh verifiable. And I, and I don't think being verifiable is required for you to believe something. Do you think that um, Do you think that reason is more likely to be circular or more likely to not be circular? Is there like a percentage or like a likelihood factor there? No, we, we can't calculate that. So it's just it's like a fifty fifty. It's like you could be ready, you could be wrong. Um, no, I don't think it's fifty fifty. Just because we don't know doesn't mean it. It's 50-50. So basically you just have to choose one? Yeah, and I guess I choose that reason is correct just because I, I have to. What, what else am I going to do? Well, if you do that, then why is it – why do you fault Kierkegaard for doing the same thing? Because you seem to hold Kierkegaard at, at fault for asserting that God exists – which seems to me, based on what you just said, to be analogous to then saying, well, reason yeah, just has to I, exist. I, I agree with you. He is analogous, and I don't fault him for doing that. I just pointed out that he did do that. Um, um, which is why I, I think uh, atheists are inconsistent, because I think that they believe in things which aren't verifiable and then criticise other people for doing the same. And that's why I think... Um, 
Kierkegaard's case for religion is very convincing. Hmm. Do you think that? Um, do you think that there is a reality, like a set way that reality is? No, I and that you do. I, I don't know. Okay, so there could be no reality. Um. There has to be something, because even if this is an illusion or a deception, then that's an objective illusion or a deception, right? Yeah, but you use reason to conclude that. Well, our, let, me, let, me, let me frame that question in a slightly more concrete way. Are Ethan and I a projection of, of your imagination in some way, or are we each discrete, real individuals having this conversation? Um, even if I accept reason to be true, I still don't believe... I could verify that you exist. Yeah, outside of my mind. Well, obviously something has to exist, right? Because even if you're going to take the Descartes route with it, your mind would still exist, right? Like there's yeah. there's something, whether it's a deception or no deception, that's objectively there. We just don't know what it yeah, is. So if we accept reason to be true, I know I exist. But I don't know you exist. Okay. I don't think the outside world is inherent from the laws of reason do you i guess i'm going to pull on a little bit of kierkegaard's like inner development strings here if there if there's an equal chance that reason is circular or reason's not circular or an, an objective reality exists or doesn't exist then do you consider yourself accepting reason as in you're going to be in the reason is non-circular camp for good and then explore the facets of that realm i guess you could say or will you always have one foot in and one foot out? So you'll have the epistemological doubt in the back of your mind, but accept that you need to make certain assumptions so that you can live life. Um, definitely the latter. Because I don't, I don't think I can just convince myself that um, reason is verifiable and it's all fine. I always have that doubt. I want to have a, a conversation about like the educated and the non-educated here. Because what if what if there was a person that grew up separate from? Because obviously it took people a long time to get here in the tradition in the tradition of thought. It took like thousands of years. So what if someone was separated from a society? Then how would they how would they come to the conclusion that they even have the ability to doubt what's real if it's so innate and and like instinctual almost for people to accept reasoning as the ultimate foundation for discovering if discovering things. So you're saying that um, if someone wasn't um, educated in, say, philosophy, they wouldn't doubt at all, and they'd think that reality just is. I'm, I'll label that as a tendency, not an absolute. How about yeah. that? Um, I guess, I don't know what I'd say to that. Uh, I don't think that proves that. That well, it definitely doesn't prove that. it, but I'm not going to be able to prove anything to you. Yeah. I, it's, I it definitely doesn't prove what, it. I won't. I, won't I don't know what that could hmm. argue. The um, I'm just going to toss two things in here and then uh, pose a new question because I don't know that we, sh we can continue circling on this one for forever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, first off, I, if I'm understanding correctly, Patrick, I think I, I, I see the logic of what you're saying in the sense that Every sort of rationality does begin with some sort of assumption, even if it is the bare bones assumption that I have senses that deliver to me 
they deliver through my neural uh, neural system the uh, information about things outside of my body or even how my body is feeling. And I through the senses, I can even describe how the body is different from myself and so on. All of that, and I, I accept that axiomatically, well, that then becomes an assertion to attack in terms of an argument. Um, I mean, I, I, I get that. And even so, I don't know that I understand how you can live that way, because that seems fundamentally inconsistent <laughs> to me that you would be able to go around believing that with even half of your mind, and then, but then also kind of shelving that and saying, no, in order for the convenience of life, I'm just going to assume that that is in fact a red light and I must stop. <laughs> Or or, and, or or that that is, in fact, a real uh, police officer and I must obey him or something. Or, because, of course, it could all be a deception. And maybe I should just walk through the hologram and, and yeah. exit the Matrix and so on. Um, it, it, it smacks of the sort of thought that this is my second thought on that. Uh, and then I would hear what you have in response. Um, G.K. Chesterton has a great passage in his book. Uh, it's either Heretics or Orthodoxy, where he talks about the closed logic of the insane. And he talks about how the insane man has a perfect logic. It's a logic that makes absolute perfect sense because it's a complete circle. There's no breaks. There's no irregularities. The logic is tight. And his logic is such that it can explain anything and everything within that. But it is just this one tight circle. And there is an entire world of other things around that circle. I think, I mean, everything you're describing is, I, I understand that. And yet it seems to me to fit with that kind of idea of like, I don't think you can ever build on what you've just said. You can't build to a set of ideas or build to a more solid understanding of the world without fundamentally accepting, yep, the world is real. Yep, reason works. And I'm going to use it to understand the world better. Without asserting those and living in alignment with those, I don't know where you go from there. Yeah, um, I don't know where I go either. I, <laughs> uh, uh, my friends are telling you that I'm I'm very indecisive, uh, and I'm I'm into politics, but I don't I don't know who I'd vote for. I, I don't I don't know. Uh, but uh. In response to you saying it's inconsistent that I live out my life, but hold this to be true, um, I don't know what the problem with being inconsistent is. Oh, man. I mean, because that's where I would say, I mean, I think the... the uh, Ethan, you'll have to tell me if you would disagree with this after... Uh, studying yeah, philosophy. Yeah, I'm, I'm formulating a ton of thoughts here. Go That's ahead. Good. But tell me if you disagree with this next one after studying philosophy with me for three quarters of a year. Because um, I would think one of the first things that you that philosophy brings to someone's actual mind and life is that desire for consistency and that desire for kind of a holistic intellectual understanding of the world. Like that's, that's back to Plato. I mean, that's what Socrates, that's what got Socrates killed because he literally went around to people and pointed out, Hey, you say this, but you don't actually think it. And he kept questioning them until they pointed it out. And that's, even though different philosophers all disagree, they're really united in that quest for intellectual consistency and living in light of what they actually think the world is. So I would, I mean, I would 
say that that that, that inconsistency is at the very beginning. It's it's uh, it's not very philosophically defensible. It's not a life that accords with wisdom. I'll respond to what you just said. I think that every and Patrick recognizes this too that there comes a point in life where you have to place a bet and you need to, and you've placed the bet based on doubt. You've placed the bet based on sensory information that you've collected, which I I'll stick with the empiricists here. I think you need your senses to pretty much extrapolate anything and even get to the abstract ideas. You have to have some sort of sensory foundation for those um, extrapolations. But it's, it seems like everyone has to come to the point where they need to place a bet. And I want to place my bet where it's, it's most likely to be correct and I'm most likely to make the best return, I guess you could say. And Patrick, I guess I'll just question – I'm not going to flip your paradigm because I can't do that because you're absolutely correct. With Your, your nihilism, is, your doubt is absolutely correct because none of it could be real. But I'm wondering – what if, and I guess the easiest way to do this is to personify reality. What if the what if the very nature and the very fact that you have to put away your doubt to live everyday life, and you have to put away your doubt to have any sort of consistency to live? What if the sheer nature of if reality is true, that truth is just so concrete and so solid, and it, there's validity in that that it forces you to rip away that doubt and to put away that doubt because the concreteness it's just it's like a it's like just sheer reality that's just there it's like you can have doubt because it's like the bare bones bottom like you you it's forcing you to put it away though i guess is what i'm saying what if reality is just that real that you can't escape it because you can you can question it and you can ask if it's not real but in the end it's an unes- it's an inescapable perfect illusion if it is an illusion yeah but i'd say that the perception that it is concrete can also be doubted further so why would it even be there why would the perception be there why would the perception no no idea because when you reject reason and recognize that it's not verifiable uh, uh how can you can't really ask any question because anything can be true I guess, and I understand that, but I guess I'm asking why reject reason when it when it appears so concrete and necessary to when not even it appears concrete. Why re- why reject reason when it's necessary to live by it? I don't think we should reject reason, and I didn't advocate. Okay. We should. I just um, I've just come to the conclusion that it is reliant on reason itself. I think is reliant on the rejection of reason because reason says you know you shouldn't just believe in things that are circular and that aren't verifiable, but reason is that thing. So I'm, I'm merely pointing out that reason requires faith. And I, I, and I do, I wouldn't say I have that faith. I just, I act as if I do, I guess. But the, but the problem with um, faith and just assuming things is first you have to assume reason and then you have to assume, or, or like you say, place a bet on empiricism. Yeah. Um, and then in order to develop any ethical theory, you have to um, assume that you can derive an all from an is, because otherwise it doesn't mean Ooh. anything. Yeah, so that's cool, because it's like the three bets you have to place. And there's more. I, I'm, I, I, uh, um, I'm sure I can think of more. And it's like yeah. you question why 
place the bets on these. I might just, I'm just doing it because I guess society has done it. The society you know exists have done has done this. So why why should we place our bets here and not somewhere else? That's cool though. That's really interesting because in order to get anywhere, the foundation has to be you need to place a bet on reason, you need to place a bet on empiricism, and you need to place a bet on whether or not there are absolutes. And then you can and then you can sort of start to get somewhere. Is that right? Yeah. But how many bets are we going to place and why place them? Three. What a beautiful number. <laughs> but there, there's uh, definitely more than three. Yeah, but three like big. I mean, three yeah, big the, ones at least, because you can't get anywhere without. You can't start without those three. I guess is what I'm saying. No, I think yeah. that's that's really interesting. Um, as y'all have been talking, I've got three things I want to jump in with, and we'll see where we go. Uh, but. Uh, Patrick, you remind me of a uh, a, a scene from uh, that David Hume recorded in his uh, in his journal, where after he had finished outlining his uh, big system of skeptical thought, um, where he's not sure he's sure that there are uh, what's the language he uses there um, there are oh, it's not observations but there are impressions uh, impressions that's it yes impressions. there are impressions that his senses receives but he has no confidence that they impression has any connection to the thing itself and he wrote this scene about how he had just thought all this in his in his head and his in his study and then he goes out to the market to buy some fish and suddenly it's as if much like ethan was describing a minute ago it's as if reality forced itself upon him and he could not hold to any of this skepticism uh that that really he, he is forced to actually interact with everyone as if all of the impressions that are on his senses are accurate and that the fish that he wants to buy is not rotten and it does cost this many this much money and the other person will give it to him and he's going to take it home in a paper sack. All of those were things that must happen. And he so he famously wrote that he could not hold to his own theory outside of his own study. Um, secondly, I absolutely love your your phrase a moment ago that reason requires faith. I think you're absolutely right about that. Um, I think in which case we're we're really at a I think we've drilled down to a really important philosophical principle. I mean, that's that's uh, I, I love this language of a bet. I mean, it's that really at the end of the day, everybody has to we we have to accept one of two premises, and I don't think we can remain undecided for very long. Uh, or at least not not if we are a, a, or in agreement with that idea of consistency as a philosophical goal and living in accordance with what we think to be true. Um, but <clears throat> if reason does require faith, it seems to me that the, the real question of faith is really at, at this point, because nobody prior to Descartes had ser- seriously raised the question of whether or not reality is real. Uh, but in our case, that's a very real question that we philosophically have to take a stance on. Um and this is square. This is a little adjacent or completely outside of philosophy, but uh, it just strikes me as very interesting in this discussion that uh, in the book of Exodus in the Old Testament, when God finally introduces Himself to Moses in a burning bush, sends Moses back to Egypt to get the Israelites, and Moses turns back to God and says, "Who shall I say sent me?" And God tells him, "Tell them Yahweh sent you." Now that's uh, Yahweh is literally the it's the being verb it's I am, <laughs> it's which for for this sake uh, it just strikes me very interesting that God names Himself the foundation of existence in the Old Testament. 
So, which I wonder then if part of this then ultimately is not just so much a bet on existence, but I don't know how you, but ultimately on whether or not if you do affirm existence, if you are affirming some ground of existence beyond the physical, meaning that you actually are taking a, are staking a claim on the existence of God. If you are going to say, yep, reality is real. It does exist. Reason lets me understand it. Here's how I can do that and move on from there. What do y'all think about it? What, what are y'all's thoughts on all that? Uh, I think that, um, I think that's interesting you draw the parallel between reason and God because I think it's it's very similar that reason is this foundation but so is God and I think um, in a sense uh, if you have faith in reason it almost becomes your religion because it's because uh, it's a set of maxims you can't necessarily mm. prove that is your faith Hmm. I would probably push back a little bit on that or not, not like directly, but it, with a question, do you think that it's possible that, cause if we're sticking with Kierkegaard's language of what we know and what we don't know and, and what we don't know is he would contend much larger than what we know in the absurd. Is it possible that God being universal and outside so that he experiences the absurd could have created reason as a tool for us to use in our limited space to, to understand him in the in the larger sense, with whatever rational abilities we have, yeah, that that's that's very possible. And uh, the atheist might say that reason was evolved um, for our space, just for um, evolution sake, and we don't need to go beyond it. We just need what we um, we just need to survive. We don't need to know whether reality exists. Evolution oh, I had a whole. Yeah. I had a really good conversation about the whole survival thing because it seems like the end goal in the atheist worldview is survival. Is that is that correct? It's both the consequence and the cause. Yeah, I'm gonna leave that there because I can't go through that. I can't do the the whole thing like I did with Anderson the other day. But that would that's a whole another conversation of itself. Yeah. No, that's uh, Ethan. I'm glad you took us back to to Kierkegaard there because that that really. Uh, that's a really interesting way to kind of frame all of this in terms of what Kierkegaard is doing with the absurd. I think Kierkegaard's also really helpful there because uh, in part, though, on, on the one hand, he's he's a very religious language heavy philosopher, but he's so <coughs> he emphasizes the individual so much that he, he places the the impetus on each person that the choice you make about your what you will do um, really becomes pertinent. Like, how do you act with with faith? Uh, become becomes a big deal. He's not mandating that faith. He doesn't think that anyone can force another person to have anything like that kind of faith. Um, Patrick, have you placed your bet? Uh, I don't know. Have I? I'm. I like to uh, separate my ideas from like what I have on a whim situationally to um, like what Josh uh, said, like in my study, in my study. No, but in the real world, I guess. Yes. Are you content with that divide? Uh, 
No. I, I, I get the nature of the divide, but I guess that's the one thing I would just suggest is worth continuing to think about. Um, I, I would want to... That means if, if if you have ideas in the study that can't be lived out in the market, one something's something's off there. One of the, those two things should resonate. And if there's discord, uh, I, I do. It's yeah. It's 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 worth spending the effort to kind of think through where in this thought process have I possibly made a false assumption. Where have I looked at one thing as evidence that maybe is not reliable? How can I find the set of ideas that are solid in the study and also work out well in the, in normal everyday life? So. I don't think there are any. Oh, well, I'll, I will at least suggest uh, – I'll, I'll at least say to the, op, the, the, to the contrary, to quote Aquinas. Um, I, I – uh, it's at least been part of my own journey in philosophy to try and figure out what is the what is the philosophy that is most consistent and coherent with reality. And I think it's part of studying philosophy. And this is why uh, it takes a lifetime to really do this. And, and it's why it's dangerous to really plant your flag early on. Uh, it's, it's so I think Ethan asked a good question, but I also really appreciate you not wanting to just on the podcast, cast a bet or something. That would be really silly. Cast um, a metaphysical bet at that. Boom. There we go. No, but um, it, it really, I, mean, I, I fell in love with Platonic philosophy when in, in college and thought that Plato's theory of the forms was the best way to explain reality. Uh, 10 years later, I think Plato thought up an interesting idea and it was hogwash. Um, I still love, I, I've become much more of an Aristotelian than a Platonist, but, uh, last year I read a volume of personalist philosophy that I thought actually did a better job than either Plato or Aristotle in explaining <coughs> contemporary ethics and contemporary moral obligations and how societies ought to interact and ought to orient themselves. Um, so I mean, for, for me, at least, the, the criterion of philosophy is not so much it's, – it's not the study um, because, honestly, any idea makes sense to me when I'm by myself and I'm thinking about it. Uh, I have an amazing ability to rationalize stuff that is really terrible. And, but then when, I, when I'm forced to go out and be around other people, uh, suddenly that their reality forces me to grapple with that in a totally different way. So, but it's not necessarily their reality, though. It's it's not their reality. It's, no, no, it's the, the, the the amount of just, but it's it's not their yeah. reality. Like each one has their own separate reality, but their 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 substantive existence is what I'm getting. So, at I guess the main question is: Does the reality in the study have to match up with the reality that's lived? Because what's studied is what's based on what's lived, right? I mean, that's all we have. Like, or else why study? And why? Like, where would we even get the materials to study from if it wasn't extrapolated from the real world? Well, I mean, I think part of that, too, has to do with – well, I, I'd say it depends because when – like, I'm, I'll just briefly point the camera towards my bookshelves. Um, yeah. when, I'm, when I'm in my study, I can pull down a variety of different people who I can then read and I can assemble their arguments together, but they can't literally talk back to me. And I'm, I can sort of select which ideas I want to consider in a particular moment. 
when I'm at work or at Walmart or uh, at the the driver's license office, suddenly there's a whole bunch of things I cannot control that are coming at me and I have to deal with and interact with. And in teaching particularly, I've got anywhere from 20 to 30 uh, very bright, very intelligent teenagers who most of which have figured out that they can tell me they think I'm wrong and, and they are constantly critiquing whatever it is that I'm trying to explain. And I have to somehow, my, my ideas in the study have to cohere with all of that. And in terms of like, I, I'm looking for that, I'm looking for congruity. So if in the study I can convince myself that all human beings are fundamentally good because I've read uh, some Woodrow Wilson and some Jean-Jacques Rousseau and some other garbage then, but then I go to work and a coworker lies to me and a student cheats on a test that day and uh, another coworker uh, spreads a rumor about me and then suddenly someone else gets the promotion that I was clearly in line for. Well, suddenly I have to take my idea that I developed in isolation that everyone is good. Okay, something's wrong. Either I don't have the right explanation for all this data that I'm now getting from real life, or my idea in the study is wrong, and I need to address those. That's what I'm trying to explain. So, I've been talking for far too long. Somebody else take it. Patrick, what do you think of that? Um, well, I think, uh, with respect, Josh, your mission to have a consistent philosophy with the study and in practice i i think it's misguided i don't think we can ever have a consistent philosophy because in order to begin at reason we need faith and if you suspend reason in order to reach reason you're not consistent from the start but what if i begin from the assumption that i have a limited rationality and that my faith may actually guide my rationality in a correct way. If I begin from there and my rationality is automatically subordinated to a set of precepts that I accept to be true, then does that does that change your, your analysis? No, because yeah. we don't know what, that your faith is is true. And I don't think we have reason to believe that. Do you need a reason to believe it, or do you just need a good reason to not reject it? Uh, I, I don't think we need a reason to believe it, but I think it would, it's irrational to believe in it if there was no evidence for it. And I think, Are we, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Since it's irrational to to do that, and since your belief has begun at irrationality any attempt to reason from that would be inconsistent. So, but are we justified in being irrational? If, like, what if we're right about this? It's like reaching for the absurd. If we're correct about the object of our reach, then why it's, it's like every human being, assuming their existence, is, is acting irrationally. And something about that doesn't seem right. Like, it seems like either they're correct or everyone is disillusioned in a way. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. Um, it just it's inconsistent. Hmm. I'm having trouble pinning down where, but I think somewhere you're using rationality in two set in two different ways. 
Um, what what do you mean by ration? What do you mean by rationality, Patrick? Or reason? I'm assuming those are synonyms. Reason, um, logic, like the uh, the principles. You know, Aristotle um, lined out with deductions. Mm-hmm. That that method of assessing premises and coming to a conclusion. Now that that. Um you bring up Aristotle. I mean, he he out he you're yeah he's he's the first one who outlines those. Uh, do you do you happen to know the title of his book where he does that? Oh, uh, I forgot. It's uh that's the Organon. It's the tool. Yeah, yeah, I remember. Yeah. Um, which I always find very interesting. He doesn't he doesn't call it the master science. Uh, instead, he calls it a tool. Uh, Aristotle was the practical philosopher of of um, beyond most. Uh, he was very attuned, as much as anybody in his time period could be, who was in that like upper class with lots of slaves to do his labor for him and so on. He was very attuned <coughs> to the practical needs. And so when he is outlining logic, he doesn't call it the the first principle. The first cause for him was God. Uh, that was uh, the first mover, the prime mover. But the logic was a tool, and it was a tool that enabled thought. Uh, and it's, it's a tool that's essential to us as human beings. It's, it plays in part where he calls us rational animals, but it's a tool that fits on part of our nature. It's the rational part, but we're more than just rational. We're also those animals. He, he argues at least we are full. We're just as we're as much body as we are mind. Uh, and so the tool has its place, but there's prior knowledge. There's plenty of things that we have to simply know uh, that we don't reach through a series of deductive precepts or inductive assertions. We simply kind of learn them through being. Uh, we get that knowledge through a lot of different ways. There's, um, I would, I think I would push back a little bit on saying that logic is and and rationality is everything. I think it's very important. I think we need rationality uh, uh, an awful lot. But I also want to kind of keep it in check. It's a tool. Logic is a tool that people use in certain places. But it's not the only way of acquiring knowledge. We may have – there are other ways of gaining knowledge. And how if, did you come to the – sorry. How did you come to the conclusion that um, it's not the only way of acquiring knowledge? Did oh. you not use reason to come to that conclusion? Well, not necessarily. I mean I, I read a bunch of fairy tales. <laughs> But like, but the I guess what he's saying is like yeah. the objective laws of reason are still there in coming. Like, like sure. A leads to B, B leads to C, then right, A leads to right. C. Right, it's still there. But I'm I'm pointing out that there are I, what I'm trying to get at is that even in Aristotle's mind, as he's naming this thing that he's trying to describe, that everyone knows. Aristotle didn't create logic. Logic predates humanity. Logic is a set of principles that are that. Uh, are that govern reality. It's they're literally uh, Peter Kraft calls them the laws of thought. Um, well, and as such, he didn't create them. But when he's naming them, uh, he's calling them a tool. There's a time and a place for a tool. Um, when I am making the bed, it is not the time for getting out the hammer. <laughs> that that just doesn't work. Um, so logic has a place. And I, I do agree with you that like that even in all of that, I'm using an awful lot of logic to kind of lay that out. Um, but a two-year-old is learning an awful lot of things that's not logical. 
Uh, a six-month-old is acquiring data and words, not through deduction or induction. It's just like the mind is out there grabbing any content that it can get because the mind is hungry for information. It's not moving in logical channels yet, but as the mind develops, it starts organizing and ordering information, and we move in more logical ways as we grow older. Uh, but we also have other ways of acquiring knowledge that are not strictly logical. What do you define as knowledge? Oh, my. Um, oh, goodness. That's a complicated question. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm uh, etymologically, we're going back to gnosis. I know Ethan loves it when I go etymology. But that's the Greek word here, gnosis. You made fun of me on an episode for using etymology, so it sticks in my head every time I reach for etymology now. It's justified here. It's just for the, it, it, just keep going. Okay, uh, gnosis. So, I mean, when we're talking about knowledge, we're talking about anything. That the mind, I'm trying not to use the words know or knowledge in there. So anything that the mind learns about anything else and then assembles in a way in like an explanatory framework of some sort. I mean, we're talking data, we're talking information, we're talking experiences, we're talking principles, we're talking memory, uh, we're talking words, we're talking feelings have a place in knowledge. Um, so it's just a recognition of reality. I, yeah. I suppose so, yeah. So then I, I that was much shorter than I came how, up with, Ethan. Thank you. I, I'd question how do we know if these uh, feelings um, outside of reason are in fact knowledge, and they do in fact correspond to reality. So you're just you're asking the essential question: Can reality be recognized if it's there? No, I'm asking the uh, the question that if we can acquire knowledge outside of reason, how can it be verified? Well, I would, I mean, goodness, I would never have done this five years ago, but I'm going to make the argument now. Um, an awful lot of our knowledge is verified through, through experience. Um, uh, so, an illustration. Uh, when I was 16, I got my driver's license, and I had, a, uh, I had a little Toyota truck that I was cruising around in, and I crashed six months in, or three months into having my first truck. So then I was cruising around a little Toyota Camry, and I loved driving and thought I was so cool in my very sporty Toyota Camry, um, and I would drive way too fast. Eventually, I realized I got enough traffic tickets for speeding and for accidents and put a big red paint scrape on the side of the Camry that I learned to drive a lot more slowly and carefully and cautiously. So much so that my wife now gets irritated with me. She calls me an old man driver sometimes because uh, I, I'm very cautious about driving because I really don't want to have the, I don't want to have any more tickets. I mean, that's, that's a, there's a, I mean, there's a cognitive knowledge I mean, I, I knew the causal chain there after the first accident, but there's a repetition of events that reinforces this and eventually an internal decision that I'm going to act on this knowledge that leads to change. But I think you've used reason there, so I don't think it's knowledge outside of reason. Do you, do you think I, people I agree. are completely rational? Uh, no. 
Okay, good. I'm glad we can. We don't have I'm, I'm with them, though. I think Patrick's right because, and it, it is, I will contend that it's a completely inescapable thing. Because if you're crashing the car, then it's, I think of it like the second premise. Because you have the first premise where I've crashed a car. But then the second premise is always the one that's missing with reason to get to the conclusion. It's like you're assuming that crashing a car is an objective reality that you're able to perceive via the senses. It's a massive premise. It's got at least five terms in there, but it's there. And you, am I, Patrick, tell me if I'm right. You need that second premise in order to reach any conclusion about the first one. Yeah. And so why, it, I guess like you could go ahead, say what you're going to say. Moreover, we also need um, the premise that, reason is correct in order to come to the conclusion right the method by which we value the premises so it's a big epicurema i guess is what i'm saying so if that's true and we can't read that the conclusion from that would be that we can't reach a conclusion about anything then why do we why are we having a philosophical conversation right now it's <laughs> a good question wait so why do you enjoy philosophy it's a good question uh in fact let's go even one step further why do you enjoy with no object like why does enjoyment happen I, I am assuming behind that black screen, uh, you're smiling somewhere. Like, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm not like, not being able to know anything doesn't make me upset. Yeah. Why not? Um, I could probably think about it more and make myself upset about it, but I choose not to. And, I, and if you're going to ask why, I, I don't know. Do you want, like, it seems like, but you wouldn't be able to get anywhere with that. Do you want to get somewhere? Um, yeah. And I, I think uh, the only way I'd be able to rationalize is if I write, I think, writing down my thoughts, I can write them more eloquently. Hmm. It seems like at some point you'll you'll place a bet and it'll be like, it's... Uh, Man, you could write a crazy book about this, Patrick. You could write like an awesome book about placing the metaphysical bet where it's like if you're going to doubt, you're going to doubt. And then it, it, ooh, it even make it like a little like analogy towards like some huge other work like the Bible. You're baptizing yourself into reality and you've been reborn into the real world. How crazy would that be? Yeah, I would like to write. Philosophy. That would be insane. And you could. Yeah, I would so read that. I'm just going to say, this sounds like a great quarantine project for the two of you. and uh, Two we, of us? Yes, y'all should, co- y'all should co-write this book together. And uh, I have a couple of, I have a friend who started a philosophy publishing press. It's uh, Public Philosophy, Kelly Burton, uh, or uh, Burton Fitzsimmons. Uh, we have a previous episode on uh, on here with her on uh, about reason, actually, and Nietzsche. Um so anyway, uh, if, if y'all co-write this, I will gladly try and help you find somebody to publish your book. I, I think there could be a great book. You should write it as either a running dialogue between the two of you or just each of you write letters to each other like about this. Uh, conversations between, I don't know what you, I don't know, both of you like name your camps and then uh, a dialogue the judge, and letters. The judge of the esthete. Why, why am I considering this? Why do I, why do I hear you out with these things? Oh. I think I'd be the prosecutor, actually. The, <laughs> the prosecutor. prosecutor. Yeah. Yes. What, I would, what would I be? The prosecuted? Um, the jury. The defense. Yeah. The defense, yeah. The defense. And then, I guess, reason on reality is on trial. Oh, there's a, oh, uh, man. 
one of C.S. Lewis's most famous books is uh, follows a similar premise. It's uh, it's That's entitled. Insane. It's called God in the Dock, and it's literally the. I, I didn't understand the book, the title for years until I learned that apparently the dock is what in the British court they call the the spot where the uh, the defendant has to sit in the court. So it's literally it's God on trial. So you guys could put uh, reason on tri- reason reason and reality on trial. Two teenagers do philosophy. <laughs> That seems pretty cool, actually. I like it. Uh, okay, let's let's wrap this up with one last question back to Fear and Trembling. Um, okay. Uh, oh goodness, I've lost our, our 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 list. Our queue of questions no longer makes any sense after we all uh, after all we've we've said and done here. Um, I'm going to wrap up with question seven. Uh, Kierkegaard is. Uh, he he ta- his method of doing philosophy is really obscure. It's called a uh, it's sort of oblique, meaning it's it's not direct, it's not obvious. Um, in terms of his method, what do you both make of Kierkegaard's oblique method? Why why doesn't he just come out and say what he wants to say? Is this a sound way of doing philosophy? What are your thoughts? Uh, well, if I wrote philosophy, the reason why I wouldn't do that is because. I wouldn't be entirely sure what I was uh, trying to say. And I think by uh, making it more oblique, he's, in a sense, rationalising himself. Because he's trying to save humanity, but he's also trying to save himself. I think it's an encouragement thing. I think the more oblique you make the philosophy, the more you make the reader work towards understanding it and when you have your reader working rather than your reader not your reader not working <coughs> it, it it impacts the or, or it it amplifies the impact of the story more because you have you're involving the reader more because you're forcing them to do more work and i think in this in the sense that kierkegaard wrote the book it's especially important for fear and trembling because it's about your inner development it's about a big leap that every human being in theory has to make if you accept his premises and he's opening up this huge wow factor about leaping past the ethical into the absurd and questioning how much you actually know. And when he places that next to your own inner development with that whole inner history, outer history kind of flowing over from either or, it it makes the reader work hard to determine what am I going to do about this? Because the whole paradigm's flipped now. Like God could be bad or he's not all powerful or he could be completely good and I could be leaping into the absurd. So what, which jump, which bet am I going to place? I guess you could say. So I, I think you're, you're both on to the important pieces there. I would only add that, uh, as a teacher, one of the principles that, uh, either we learn or we quickly discover in the classroom is that, uh, when you tell students things, they remember about 10% of what you tell them. But when students actually discover something for themselves, they remember between 50 and 75% of what they discover on their own. And I think like Socrates. That's, yeah, that's, that's a lot of what Socrates was trying to do. I think that's what Kierkegaard's wanting to do. Um, uh, you can read all kinds of folks who just say what they want to say. Immanuel Kant does that. Hegel maybe does that. Um, Kierkegaard wants you, the reader, to go through this circuitous pilgrimage of philosophy and along the way, he's hoping to provoke you to some moment of self-discovery. And when you figure it out, he thinks that's actually going to lead to actual individual change. And if not change, at least thorough engagement in the idea that his character is presenting. So part of his method of doing that, 
is going to be cre- <coughs> creating all of these figures who do in fact interact with each other and with the reader, or not really with each other, but interact with the reader through the through the text and hopefully force you to come to some uh, level of understanding. Okay, uh, gentlemen, any final thoughts before we wrap up this episode? I think we've hit everything. I mean, I, we've come to all the dead ends we're going to get to. We've come to all of the um, conclusions based on rationality or based on the big three that we determined, trusting reason, trusting empiricism, and questioning God through Kierkegaard's book. So I, we've gone in a massive circle, but it was worth it. It's a nicely drawn circle. Yeah, and we didn't talk that much about the book, actually. I didn't think we would. I really didn't think we would. <laughs> Uh, I, I, I had on my list the uh, Abraham as the night of faith, the night of infinite resignation, an attempt to tie that to COVID-19, but I think we've all talked enough about COVID-19 in the last three weeks. We can avoid that. Uh, and also, oh, it doesn't I, exist. <laughs> we're just going to assert that it does exist. The internet is getting more and more censored and controlled as the days go on. So uh, just in case the Twitter bots are looking for a podcast show that denies the existence of COVID-19, oh, no. let it be known. <laughs> we need, it does we exist. So Our thumbnail is COVID-19 doesn't exist. And we get so many views from that. Uh, no, no, we're not, no. not, we're not getting views that way. Truth and communication. Um, well, uh, Patrick, uh, any any last words on this for for this conversation? Uh, if the ends justify the means, then we could line the thumbnail in order to uh, show people knowledge. Unfortunately, well, at least I'm we gonna. Can, <laughs> we can suspend the ethical. Oh, uh, well, why not? Honestly. Yeah, I, I, I don't see a good purpose in suspending the ethical, and I'm just going to assert that uh, the integrity of our show is probably more important than uh, upping the, uh, the, the, the ratings for, for this episode. Well, uh, Patrick and Ethan, thank you both for uh, doing the work of reading Fear and Trembling, and I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. Hopefully we can have another one of these uh, at some point. Ladies and gentlemen listening to this show, thank you so much for uh, bearing with us for a meandering conversation about fear and trembling, reason, rationality, uh, the existence of God, and uh, a lot of other things along the way. Uh, We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do that in a variety of ways. You can reach out to us over email at whatstheres at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram with the handle at whatstheres underscore. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash whatstheres. Oh, and before we sign off, uh, Patrick, what's the uh, handle for your your memes page? At memes.philosophy. Excellent. Uh, Ethan, take us take us out of this episode. All right. Work hard, speak well, and sing the truth.